Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you turned in this morning for our monthly Bible question and answer. So make sure you have a Bible that you can follow along because we're not going to be in one passage. We'll be you know, jumping back and forth. So make sure you have a Bible that you can uh, look at. We obviously can't spend a long time on every question because there are a number of them, but we'll at least hit a few thoughts and, and then uh, go from there. So uh, first question is on 1 Timothy chapter 2. So let's turn over to Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> And in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, Paul talks about Eve being deceived, not Adam. And uh, that is down in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 talks about Adam or Eve being deceived, not Adam. The implication is that Adam sinned willfully and Eve out of ignorance. Is that a fair analysis? And yes, it is a fair analysis. And in fact, I think it's very specifically what the passage is teaching. If you go back, if we had time to go back to the Genesis passage, we would find that it says that when Eve uh, was deceived into eating the forbidden fruit, she gave to her husband who was with her. Very significant. Implication, Adam was right there with her and did not step in, did not intervene. She was deceived. Uh, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, And then the question goes on, is there a distinction between the severity of God's judgment on man and woman respectively? Well, to answer that question, I think we won't uh, won't turn to it for the sake of time. But yes, uh, you can jot down Romans 5.12 because it's interesting to note that even though Eve sinned first and then Adam followed her leadership, we read in Romans chapter 5 that through one man sin entered the world, namely Adam. In other words, the fall of the human race occurred when Adam sinned, and he sinned willfully. So the, uh, whatever term you want to use, the blame, the responsibility, etc., when it comes to that, the responsibility is clearly on Adam. And that's what is brought out in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, And then you ask, well, uh, is there a distinction between the severity of God's judgment on man and woman? Again, if we had time, we can go back to Genesis 3 and study that account of the curse, and I would say that yes, at least initially this was the case, because if you remember the curse that was instituted as a result of the fall, it said that man would toil uh, endlessly, in a sense, under the curse, uh, with the curse on the ground, and he would labor and toil and sweat and so forth, and the woman would feel the effects of increased pain in childbirth, so especially it would come out at a time like that. So uh, even that seems to be the implication of this, this continual effect of the curse or consequence for Adam in trying to toil and labor, uh, the woman ba- basically feeling the, or mainly feeling the effects uh, in, in childbirth. Of course, then there are other ramifications because you've got a sin nature that is then shared by both men and women, uh, etc. Uh, so there, there are some issues there that the person asked this question that you, you're thinking down the right path. You could pursue some more, uh, but you, you need to go back to Genesis 3. One of the very significant aspects of it, and you don't ask about this, and it was beyond really the scope even of 1 Timothy 2, but one of the most fascinating things about the curse that few people realize is that one of the results of the curse, because Eve did what she did, stepping out of her role, because Adam did what he did, 
and, and uh, not stepping in, uh, there is actually a built-in curse on marriage. There is literally a built-in curse on marriage, uh, a power struggle that occurs in marriage, and it's in the context of when God is addressing the woman. He says, your desire shall be toward your husband, and he will rule over you. The desire there that is spoken of, same grammatical structure as the next chapter, where Cain is warned that sin is at the door and its desire is for you. Its desire is to control you, dominate you. You must master it. And so that statement there in Genesis 3 is not a positive thing, as some commentators would suggest. Your desire shall be toward your husband as if this is a positive, flowery thing. It's a bad thing. It is the beginning of the, the battle of the sexes. It is the beginning of the power struggle that's in every marriage, which is why when you come to Ephesians 5, Verse 21, the verse leading into marriage says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why would the Holy Spirit use that verse leading into marriage? Because the Holy Spirit knows one of the main problems in marriage. Rather than mutual submission, submitting to one another, husband by loving his wife as Christ loved the church, woman submitting to her husband as unto the Lord, rather than that going on, that doesn't happen naturally in marriage. Instead, there is a vying for control, power, domination, position, rather than than uh, a humble submission on the part of both. So a lot of things going on in that, in that whole passage on the curse. And so appreciate the, the person who asked this question. You, yes, as I said, you're thinking down the, the right line on this and uh, study that passage in Genesis 3 in detail to pull more out and to compare it with what you were reading here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our next question says this, Pastor Brian, could you please... Uh, give some biblical examples or evidence that shows the importance of becoming a member of a church and getting involved with a good, solid local church. I've had conversations with believers who don't feel it's necessary to join a church, and I I like to show them in God's Word that the the Lord wants us to accomplish His work through the church. Very good question. This is a common question. Uh, A few years ago, I wrote a little article or a, a brief piece on this, and we use it now in our membership class, because it is very common to hear people say, well, you know, the church membership, there's nothing really biblical about that, and being a part of a church, there's really nothing biblical about that. It's sort of a, sort of the, the pervasive attitude is this loosey-goosey, you just kind of, you know, no commitment to a, a local body, etc. So I wrote a little piece that we use, and I'll just read part of it to you, and, and it's titled, Why Membership? It says, when discussing the subject of church membership, it is not uncommon to hear Christians ask questions such as, do I really need to join a church? After all, if I'm a member of the universal church, then why do I need to be a member of a local church? Is church membership even a biblical concept? Valid question. Christians who ask questions like these often assume that church membership is not a biblical concept and that the early church was simply a loosely gathered group of individuals without any structure, organization, or, quote, membership. However, A close look at the information given to us in the New Testament indicates otherwise. For example, a record of numbers was kept. We know that from Acts 2.41, Acts 4.4. Leaders were elected or appointed. We see that in Acts 6.2, Philippians 1.1. Letters of recommendation were sent back and forth from churches, Acts 18.27. A register of widows was kept according to 1 Timothy 5.9. Discipline was carried out even to the point of some severance from an identifiable group, Matthew 18.17. 1 Corinthians 5.13. In light of this information, now please hear this statement, it is readily admitted that church membership is an implicit teaching of the New Testament rather than an explicit teaching. In other words, what I'm saying there is you don't have chapter and verse that says you should become a member of a church. 
you should join a church. It's not an explicit, it's more of an implicit. The implications of the above passages are crucial ones. And then, I close this little article by saying, 1 Peter 5.3 exhorts elders to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. It's very important for those of us who are elders. Shepherd the flock of God, that, or the, the one that's among you. Hebrews 13.17 says that elders will someday give an account for this shepherding. In light of that responsibility, it's extremely important for elders to know clearly which sheep have placed themselves under their care. Therefore, if you are a member of the universal church, you should be a member of a local church. So again, to just summarize, uh, this is not an explicit statement, chapter and verse, but the, uh, the evidence of the New Testament is that the New Testament churches did have roles, if you will, not the kind you eat at, at the potluck, you know what I mean, I'm talking about membership roles, uh, uh, widows were put on roles, not taken off roles, etc. Numbers were kept, etc., etc. So contrary to the popular opinion that there's just this loose lack of organization, that's not the picture you really see in the New Testament. All right, next question says this. Uh, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 13, all the way back in Hebrew Scripture, 2 Samuel. This is the sad and tragic story of Amnon and Tamar. You'll remember the story that Amnon desired Tamar, who was uh, a half-sister of his, and he came up with some advice on a plan on on how to subdue her and violate her. And in verse uh, 11, Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister, but she answered him, No, 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 my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. The question is, why did Amnon suddenly hate Tamar so much after he took what he wanted from her? Well, if you read the story, you will notice that the text does not specifically say, so we can't say for sure. But from similar experiences working with people who have experienced such tragedies and so forth, or maybe committed such things, Uh, it is not uncommon to see this because uh, the man who, so let's just keep it in this case, Amnon, uh, after doing such a a horrific thing, would have felt guilt in his conscience and uh, in trying to somehow transfer, deal with that guilt rather than deal with it in a biblical way, would transfer the blame to the woman, implying somehow it was her fault. So his sudden revulsion was the result of her unwilling resistance, the atrocity of what he had uh, done, feelings of remorse, dread of exposure, punishment, all of these things rendered her intolerably undesirable to him after the fact. And as I say, uh, it is not an uncommon response or scenario. It's a just horrendous story and a horrendous experience that sadly is not restricted to the time of when Second Samuel was written. All right, the next question says this. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for this question. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
And uh, this question is this. If the Spirit of God gives spiritual gifts as He wills, and that is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, the last phrase, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So that's an accurate statement. So, so God gives the gifts as He desires, and it is an act of God. Why would God tell us to earnestly desire gifts? And this is chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the best gifts or greater gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. The question is, how does this relationship work between desiring something that God decides to give or not give? Very good question. Uh, let's go back, establish the basis. The gentleman writing this question is right on it. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 makes it clear that it is the Holy Spirit who determines what spiritual gifts are given. Uh, in other words, we, we don't have a say-so over our spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit of God sovereignly determines that. And so, the end of this 12th chapter, verse 31, it earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way, sounds like a contradiction. So what, how do you explain this verse as well as chapter 14, verse 1? Two comments on this. First of all, uh, it is possible that in verse 31, Paul, when he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts is saying, plural, to the congregation, desire the gifts most profitable for edification. Because he will say that as he moves on in his instruction in chapter 14. You should desire, you, plural, as a church family, should desire what is most edifying. Not what is most focused on yourself, but what edifies the body. So you can read verse 31 in that way. Earnestly desire the best gifts. That is, you as a congregation should earnestly desire those gifts that are best for the corporate family of God, not the ones that are more showy for you. Or here's another way to take verse 31. Uh, It is most translations, I think it is translated as an imperative. But interestingly, the Greek form here is the same for imperative or indicative So it may not be a command. It is possible that this is an indicative. And if so, then what Paul is saying is not earnestly desire, command them, but you earnestly desire the, now this Greek word, best, greater, there's a textual issue here. It's possible that what he's saying is you are earnestly desiring the, the, the greater gifts, that is the ones that give you more of a, uh, a position or a pat on the back. And yet, at the end of the verse, I show you a more excellent way, which leads him right into chapter 13, the way of love. So it's possible, let me paraphrase, it's possible that verse 31 is saying, you are desiring the most showy gifts, the most glamorous gifts, the most spectacular gifts. In other words, you want it because it's just something spectacular, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way than that. Rather than wanting to be pat on the back, you know, have people pat you on the back and people, uh, you know, commend you because you have this showy gift, you should want to display love. So either way you take that, then you have no contradiction with what is stated earlier. Either saying desire the gifts, the better gifts, that the ones that are better for the profit of the entire body for edification, or maybe he's making a comment, you are desiring the, the most showy gifts, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way, the way of love. All right, next question. In fact, we have a couple from little ones here in the church. It's always neat. Every single month, we always have really little guys and gals um, ask questions. And here's one that came from a, a young gal. Uh, did, did Lot's wife know Jesus? Now, you're, you remember the story of Lot's wife. 
God is going to rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. God rescues his people out. In fact, Peter, when he writes in 2 Peter, says that is an example that God delivers his people before he brings judgment. But as Lot's wife was going, or Lot and his wife and family were leaving, she turned back and became a pillar of salt. And as a result of that, it is, this is a great question because it's very easy to assume, it's not necessarily a good assumption, it's very easy to assume from that that Lot's wife was an unbeliever, that she was a, you know, not a child of God. But we can't guarantee that that's the case. And in fact, if you use Peter's words of, how God delivers his own out before he brings judgment, that would indicate, now I'm not saying it's definitive, but that may indicate that even Lot's wife was a believer, a child of God. And if that's the case, it's very possible. And if so, it would illustrate the the consequences of sin. In other words, just because we are children of God, or let me say it in the singular, just because someone is a child of God doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sinful choices and sinful behavior. So, in answer to your question, did Lot's wife know Jesus? Or to put it in more of an Old Testament context, was Lot's wife a child of God, a believer? It's possible. We can't say definitively, but the fact that she experienced that judgment should not lead you to the automatic assumption, well, she was an unbeliever, and that's why that happened. That may not be the case. All right, next question is uh, this. Uh, How does sin affect our ability to hear from the Spirit or walk in the Spirit day to day? Two-part question, so let me answer it in two parts. First of all, how does, the, how does sin affect our ability to hear from the Spirit? Let's answer that question. The way we hear from the Spirit is, according to Ephesians 6.17, is through the Word of God. That's why Ephesians 6.17 says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, we, don't hear, we don't hear from the Spirit in some mystical way. Uh, we don't hear from the Spirit just by being quiet and hope He says something to us. We hear from the Spirit through His Word. That's why the Word is called the sword of the Spirit. It's His sword. So now to plug that into your question, how does sin affect our ability to hear from the Spirit? Or, or let's say it this way, how does sin affect our ability to hear the Spirit's uh, voice in Scripture? I would say this. Now, we all know that our theology affects our behavior, right? I mean, what you believe affects the way you live. And I don't know of any Christian that would deny that. However, what a lot of Christians are not aware of is this. The flip side of the coin is our behavior also affects our theology. And what I mean by that is I have many times through the years uh, worked with uh, Christians uh, and, of course, I can't say definitively or, or dogmatically who is a Christian or not, but people that I am fairly confident that the fruit of the Spirit is in their lives, a love for Christ, a love for the Word of God, and when they start being drawn toward the deceitfulness of sin, to use the expression from the writer of Hebrews, they start questioning the things they believe. But it's interesting the order that it's their, effect, their actions now that are affecting their uh, their beliefs, and not the other way around. It's like, well, if I hold on to what I believe or what I know to be true, wow, that's really, really convicting me for the way I'm living. So many times through the years, I have seen people, at least from my own standpoint, I, I, I am convinced, do know the Lord, uh, that they knew the Lord, but 
uh, as they begin to be deceived by sin and be drawn towards sin, they start saying, well, I'm not sure I believe all the stuff I used to believe. Well, that's just a way of sort of easing the huge tension on the conscience when you go into sin. So to answer your question, how does sin affect our ability to hear from the Spirit? Well, when we are involved in sin, it will affect our ability to hear the Spirit and the Word because we won't be open, we won't be receptive, we won't like what we hear. So we put up these barriers, these blockades. So it will have an effect on how we hear the Spirit, sin, undealt with sin in our lives. The second part of your question, how does sin affect uh, our ability to walk in the Spirit day to day, well, sin quenches the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. Sin grieves the Spirit, Ephesians 4, which cuts off the flow of power. What is one of the reasons why God has given us His indwelling Holy Spirit? He is the resident strengthener to enable us to obey and walk with Christ. So when, we, when Ephesians 4 says, Do not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed, First Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Holy Spirit. When we do sin and will not deal with it, will not uh, repent, it, uh, repent of it, confess it, then we are basically restricting, cutting off the flow of power to live the Christian life. So that is why the New Testament has much to say about believers. Now let me emphasize this point, about believers dealing with sin properly. And I, I'm saying this because I, I'm increasingly running into Christians who assume that because they see someone who is involved in sin, well, that person's automatically a non-Christian. Well, they, they can't be a Christian and, and, and do those kinds of things. They can't be a Christian and live that way. Now, it is true. First John talks about that, you know, the one who continues in sin, unbroken pattern, doesn't know the Lord. But there are so many warnings in the New Testament about sin in the lives of Christians, we dare not pass it off and just assume if someone's struggling with sin, oh, that he's a non-Christian, she's a non-Christian. There are serious warnings Serious instructions about dealing with sin because it does cut off the flow of power. It quenches the Spirit, grieves the Spirit, has a major impact on our ability to walk in the Spirit. Our next question is on Matthew chapter 1. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Here in the opening genealogy, if you uh, remember this opening part of Matthew's Gospel... He traces three segments of gene the genealogy of Christ uh, in, in um, 14 generations. And uh, you, you read down through here, starting in verse 1. We won't read all of these, but uh, it, it talks about the, all these lists. And so, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. And so the question is, did the pattern continue? What happened 14 generations after Christ was born? And here's the answer to the question. We don't know, and let me tell you why we don't know. We don't know because all the records were destroyed with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Records were in all likelihood still being kept. So there could have been a continual genealogical table or genealogical list but all the records were destroyed, which is really a fascinating thing today in modern day, uh, in modern day times because when you talk with Jewish people, uh, rarely does any Jewish person know what tribe he or she is from. They don't know because there are no records. About the only exception to that is the priestly tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, sometimes knows because if the, a Jewish person has the last name like of Kohen, C-O-H-E-N. That's a priestly name, priestly tribe, probably from the tribe of Levi. There are a couple names 
that give them a pretty good idea. But for the most part, Jewish people have no clue what tribe they are from because all the records are gone. However, it is interesting in the book of Revelation that in chapter 17, God says, that's one of the amazing things about that passage in Revelation chapter 7, that in the future, he is going to seal 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000 will be special evangelists sealed for the tribulation period to be special witnesses throughout the last days. And people ask, well, how, how do we know who that we don't? But God does. He knows where every tribe, every Jewish person is from. And so he will seal 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000. And you find out in Revelation 14 that he preserves them all the way through the seven years of the tribulation from chapter 7 to chapter 14 because they are sealed to make it all the way through to be witnesses throughout the, the last time. All right, next question. Again, here from a real little one. Uh, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons because they were not born? God made them as an adult. And I, you're right, and I don't think they did. We, we don't have a statement on that, but uh, we know where a belly button comes from, the umbilical cord in the mom, all of that, and that is not how Adam and Eve uh, came about, direct creation from God. So in all likelihood, they didn't have belly buttons. You can ask them if you see them someday. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is probably a familiar story to many. It's about Jonathan and David, Jonathan's loyalty to David when, when King Saul was trying to kill David. And so they came up with a plan, 1 Samuel 20, verse 5. David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fall, fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission to me that he might run over to Bethlehem. Remember, that's where he was from. Run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. And here's the question that is asked. Were David and Jonathan sinning when they lied to Saul to find out Saul's true attitude towards David? A uh, couple comments on this. Uh, one is uh, the way sometimes we uh, ask a question, we may assume that something is the case. Now, uh, it is possible, I'm not saying this is the case, we don't know, but it is possible that David did go to the family feast. In other words, he went and hid in the field, did go to the family feast that happened yearly, and then returned to hide in the field further. We're not told all the, the, the details specifically sometimes of these things. Um, but the follow-up question related to this, uh, were those who were protecting the Jews and lying to the police sinning? And this leads into... You know, did Rahab sin when she, you know, hosted the spies and said, quick, they went out already, you need to pursue them. And uh, were the, you know, the, um, uh, I can't remember the term, the, the birth uh, ladies in Egypt, what are they called? Midwives, there you go, the midwives, uh, you know, when they, they were told to kill all the Jewish baby boys and they said, Oh, but the Hebrew women, they're in such good shape. They have the babies before we even get there. So we don't have a chance to go. And there are multiple questions like this. And um, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's far more complicated than you can deal in the question and answer. In fact, a, a good semester of, of an ethics class just barely begins to try to wrestle through these issues because, as I said, some of the times we're only given bits and pieces of the story, so we don't really know the whole story. And making a judgment call on something that we only know partially. Uh, so that's why it's probably unwise to make a judgment either way. In other words, some people use those passages to say, oh, it's okay to lie if you're protecting someone's life. And they use those types of passages, assuming they know all the story, assuming that they were lying, when maybe there's more to the story, because you know in your own study of Scripture that, that even in the Gospel accounts there are abbreviations of what took place. There isn't the whole story. So to use those types of stories to say it's okay to lie or to, to use them and draw the other conclusion to say it's always wrong, when God doesn't necessarily say that in the text, if that's assuming they did wrong, uh, it's, it's uh, unwise, in my opinion, to try to build doctrine on that. In other words, what I, what I would say is this. When you have stories in the Old Testament where God tells a story and he doesn't give, give his assessment of the story, then you are unwise to draw your own conclusions if you don't have scriptural support elsewhere. So go to clearly detailed passages about how to live and don't go to the examples. Because remember, examples or stories in Scripture, when it comes to authority, they are inspired, they are authoritative, but what they are what theologians call descriptive authority, not normative authority. Descriptive authority means that they are described the, the description that is there is authoritative in the sense it's inspired, but they are not necessarily meant to be the norm. Let me take it outside this realm just to illustrate my point. If you try to go to the book of Acts and build your doctrine of the Holy Spirit in relation to the Christian on the book of Acts, you'll be hopelessly lost. Because you have Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit coming upon the Jews. Acts chapter 8, Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, coming upon the Gentiles. Acts chapter 19, coming upon the disciples of John the Baptist. And if you were to study all four of those passages, you'd find something very amazing. They don't match. You have no consistent pattern. So if you're going to try to draw your doctrine of the Holy Spirit in relation to the child of God on the book of Acts, you're going to be hopelessly lost. Instead, in fact, in several of those passages... You have examples of people who were clearly Christians who did not possess the Holy Spirit. And yet you come to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where we read, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. He doesn't even belong to Christ. So there you have a statement, Romans 8, 9, to build your doctrine uh, of the Holy Spirit on rather than the stories in the book of Acts. So in a similar way, I would just say, when it comes to passages like this, rather than, since God didn't choose, he could have told us his assessment. He could have put a little parenthesis, you know what, they shouldn't have done it this way. They lied. I could have taken care of them another way. or whatever. God doesn't give an, an editorial comment. He doesn't give us a commentary. So I just think we're wise to tread very carefully and not give our own, especially in a dogmatic way. Just read the story and say, this is what happened. Whether God would have agreed the way they did it, I mean, with Rahab, that's what she did. She said, they're gone. Go fetch them. That's what happened. It's interesting that James in the New Testament doesn't really help us either because when he commends Rahab, he commends her faith. He doesn't commend her methodology. So we still don't know if her methodology was okay or not. Uh, we know her faith was exemplary. So that, that would be my assessment. And this story here, 
the one in Exodus with the midwives and the one uh, in Joshua about Rahab. And, and you know from reading through the Old Testament, you could add another couple dozen stories like that. Just tread very carefully. Just read what the text says and just say, that's what it says. And God, for whatever reason, didn't choose to give us an editorial comment or commentary. So we'll leave it at that. However, I would add one verse, and uh, I don't remember if it was Dan. I think it was Dan that in his prayer mentioned this verse. It is interesting that Jesus, when he was sending his disciples out, said to them, Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. That is, the more I meditate on that verse, that is so striking because that's, it's almost impossible to be that. It's almost impossible because we are to be as wide as serpents. I think some translations even use the term shrewd which usually has negative connotations to us. Shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Shrewd and innocent. You, do you know how hard it is to, to walk that balance? Because if you're shrewd, it's very easy to be uh, unprincipled. But if you're gentle and harmless, it's very difficult for someone who's just very innocent to be shrewd. But Jesus said we're supposed to be both. And the more I reflect on it, the more I realize how impossible in our own humanness, in our own strength, apart from God's grace, to strike that perfect balance of being wise, as ser- shrewd as serpents, but harmless, innocent, or gentle as doves. Okay, Matthew chapter 24 for the next question. Matthew chapter 24. And... This is the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talking about the end times, and uh, a very good question here because it's, it is a complex one. The question is this, are Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 1 through 35, referring to events in the future, I would say yes, or the events of A.D. 70, I would say no. Uh, and so, I would say there are events in the future, and why do I say that? Well, a lot of reasons, but one reason is verse 29, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, immediately. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So Jesus said, immediately after these events, I'm coming back to the earth, and I'm going to sit on my throne. He says over in chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels, He will sit on the throne of His glory. So clearly that tells me that Matthew 24 is future. Future like still future today. And then the question is, if they are future, then how does Luke 21, 20 square with Matthew 24, 15? In Luke's gospel, chapter 21, 20, we have a similar account. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now, listen closely, because this is a little bit complicated. Matthew's account does not include this statement from Luke 21, 20. Because Matthew wanted to avoid any confusion, making sure that we understood that these words were about the end time. Luke includes it to show that before the end of all things, Jerusalem would be destroyed, which did happen in A.D. 70. Not saying that it would happen right before, but that Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed and then at some point in the future all these other events would happen and Jesus would come back. However, it's interesting to note that the prophets tell us that in the end times, Jerusalem will not be destroyed, though it will be, there will be attempts to destroy it. So you cannot combine these two 
Matthew 24, Matthew leaves out that statement because he's talking about the end times specifically and exclusively. Luke's account includes some words from Jesus saying, here, I'm going to take you all the way to the end of the age, but I'm going to give you a key event prior to that, namely the destruction of Jerusalem. But when it comes to the end, other passages of Scripture tell us Jerusalem will not be destroyed. So Luke 21 does include a statement about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Matthew does not, but both accounts eventually point to the end. Our next question says this, uh, Matthew 19, 28. Let's go to the next gospel, Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, this Jesus is on the cross. <clears throat> Verse 28 tells us, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on his put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up, gave up his spirit. We also know from another gospel account, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Last two statements of Jesus on the cross. So how does this square with, and then the, there are three verses, Luke 22, 18, Mark 14, 25, Matthew 26, 29. All three say the same thing. Jesus, celebrating Passover with his disciples, says on all three of those occasions, says, drink here the fruit of the vine. I will no longer drink of it till I do so in the kingdom. So appears there could be a contradiction. Jesus said, I won't drink the fruit of the vine anymore uh, until I do so in the kingdom, millennium. So how does this fit? Well, I would say this. First of all, here in John 19, Jesus took this simply to moisten his mouth to be able to speak. He wasn't drinking wine, drinking the fruit of the vine. He took it just to be able to speak his last two statements. It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he was not like, obviously, wasn't a casual drink of grape juice on the cross. Secondly, I would say this. If you go back to those passages, Luke 22, Mark 14, Matthew 26, his statement in the Synoptic Gospels was saying he would not drink the fruit of the vine with the disciples and specifically would no longer celebrate Passover until he did so in the kingdom. So it's not a contradiction at all because Jesus wasn't making a statement in there that I'll never let any sour wine touch my lips to moisten my mouth to be able to speak a word. But I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, and I will not celebrate Passover. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine with you men, and I will not celebrate Passover. All right, Romans chapter 5. Next question. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 say this. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And the question is, how does perseverance lead to hope? It seems like our hope would push us to persevere, but that's backwards from what Paul says here. You are correct. It does, the way you word it, is true also. Uh, Perseverance, I mean, uh, hope leads to perseverance, but perseverance leads to hope because, notice the passage here, in between the two, perseverance leads to proven character and this proven character to hope. So perseverance leads to hope in this way. Because perseverance strengthens our character and gives us proven character, and that can be translated that way, that confirms to our hearts that we truly are children of God with a future hope. So perseverance, persevering through difficulty, gives us proven character. That proven character demonstrates, confirms that we are truly children of God, which then 
leads to that future hope or confirms that future hope. The next question says this, what is your opinion on smoking hookah? I understand that tobacco is unhealthy and addicting, but then again, so is pop and fast food. In many parts of the world, it is considered a cultural tradition. I'm wondering if the action is automatically considered a sin or if both the cultural and motives also need to be taken into consideration. I don't think you could have said it any better. I don't think you could prove biblically that it's inherently automatically a sin. You are right that this is, there's some, there are many cultural things that go into play here. Uh, but as you say, caution needs to be exercised. Objective honesty. In other words, if you're a missionary in those settings... Uh, just uh, uh, doing that as a part of the cultural uh, thing may not necessarily be a wrong issue. But it, again, caution because of the, uh, like you say here, uh, a lot of things could be addicting. And then objective honesty. Am I doing this really as a bridge, something that's not inherently sinful but be- could become sinful? Am I doing this as a bridge in culture? Or am I doing this just because I want to do this and maybe, you know, get hooked on this? So you said it well. Uh, uh, both culture and motives need to be taken into consideration. All right, next question. Two more, and we're done. It says, uh, let's say a woman is committing adultery so that the husband divorces her. According to 1 Corinthians seven eleven. she should not remarry unless she reconciles to her husband. But if years down the road, if this woman repents, is she able to remarry? Because in Matthew five thirty two, it also states that whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Even after genuine repentance, is this woman able to remarry? Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, yes. Yet, so many verses say not to marry. And my comment would be this. The sin, you're right, the sin is forgivable. The adultery is forgivable if there's repentance. The divorce is forgivable. But that doesn't automatically mean that there's freedom to remarry. Uh, Just because there is forgiveness of sin doesn't mean that all consequences are automatically erased. And we even have this in our own society. You know, someone who, for example... Uh, uh, we saw this in our own community here not too long ago. Sadly, a, a teacher, someone who is in authority, uh, behaving improperly with young girls in a school. Well, all that can be forgiven. He can even pay his debt to society, but he'll never teach in a school again. He'll never be allowed in that setting. So it doesn't mean that there's a lack of forgiveness, but the consequence is, you know what, you don't ever get to be in that position again. So you're right. It's not the unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin, but it doesn't automatically mean if there's forgiveness, that there's freedom to remarry. However, I would say this. I'm not implying uh, that the woman is not free because you've raised a, you know, a very complex situation and it, each situation would have to be analyzed in light of that individual situation in light of Scripture. So rather, I, I don't feel comfortable making a blanket statement other than two blanket statements that the sin is not unforgivable and secondly, it doesn't automatically mean just because there's forgiveness, there is freedom to remarry. All right, last question is this. And there's an article, some of you may have seen it, in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. Bible translator criticized over word changes. It's about Wycliffe Bible translators. And the question is, I took this article to mean that the Bible Bible translators, Wycliffe, are considering changing the very words of the Bible, God's words. Am I understanding this right? Well, let me say this. You have reason to be concerned. Um... This is a very uh, involved question. I will just tell you this, that Pastor Dave and I have both been 
very involved in this, especially Pastor Dave. I appreciate his tireless work. He's been corresponding with Wycliffe and SIL and many missionaries expressing our view as a church. Uh, it's, it's not fair to Wycliffe to paint it with a broad brush and say that this is what Wycliffe is doing. But some of those, especially in SIL, which is sort of an affiliate of Wycliffe, are unwilling to translate the word father in reference to God in Muslim contexts because Muslims think that automatically means God had sexual relations with Mary and that's how Jesus was born. So the translators are allowing the, the Muslim doctrine to influence their translation. And that's a poor way to translate. Uh, that is, we, we would not agree with that. Let me just state that as a church. Uh, we feel like it's the job of the translator to be as literal as possible, recognizing figures of speech, etc. And then it's the job of the Bible teacher to explain what that means. Not changing the words of Scripture to try to get around or over the hurdle of Muslim error in their theology. And we've made that very clear to Wycliffe. We've made that very clear. And again, Pastor Davis had tireless conversations uh, interchanges and is included me in, in all of them. I've had some also. Uh, so one, I would say this, pray for Wycliffe. Two, don't assume everybody in Wycliffe would agree with that and paint him with a broad brush. Uh, but be aware of this because this is a direction that we feel as leaders is a very unwise and unhealthy direction to go with Bible translation. So appreciate you bringing that up. It was an article in the paper. It is an issue, a very important issue just received an email this week from another country, uh, one of our outreach partners there, saying that the, the church there is very upset with the translation that came out there. Uh, and uh, we, we concurred. We appreciated that. So we're, we're staying on top of this as much as we can and appreciate you raising the issue there. All right, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together tonight for our time in your word as we look at these questions, these issues. Thank you for the opportunity to send out these uh, two men who were here before us, who are going short-term, long-term, to spread your word. And uh, we do pray just for your spirit to use them in a powerful and effective way. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather on this special holiday. And again, we want to thank you for uh, the moms who are present here in our midst, those that seek to live for Christ and have sought and continue to seek to live a, a godly a life, a Christ-like life uh, before their family members. And uh, we do want to honor them and commend them and thank you for them as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.